All right. So um, most of you found it easier on a second reading, even if even if Leah didn't. Um, did you like it more or less on a second reading? Yeah. More. more? Why? Because it was easier, of course. <laughs> Uh huh. Okay, and so um, part of it is uh, we talked about this a little last time, but maybe it's clearer this time, especially if in understanding it you were consulting your own political experience. Um, that is what happens when people get into power, and um, what happens when people are out of power, and how vicious political life can be, um, which we can see happening around us right now. Um, part of the point of Absalom and Nikitafel is to say that um, these things are always the same. That is essentially the same story that's told in Samuel and Judges um, applies to England in the 1680s. Um, that's what people are like. Um, that's how um, people act politically. That's what politics is like. Um, why would it's, um, if you read any of the head notes, whatever edition you read it in, um, you probably know that Dryden wasn't the only person to make the connection between um, uh, Monmouth and um, Shaftesbury and Charles II and James II and um, Aslan McKittifel and David. Um, what is the politics, let me just ask this as a general question, what is the politics of making that connection at all? That is, um, what, thinking about this poem, why would it be um, already a kind of take on the situation, attitude towards the situation, forgetting how things play out? I mean, that is, um, things play out that David stayed king and Absalom dies in, um, the Bible, but leaving leaving the um, um, the 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 resolution of the story aside, um, what does it mean politically even to say that the same story gets repeated over and over again? That a biblical story will repeat itself in similar circumstances in England um, almost 3,000 years later, 2,500 years later, and that a similar story, as I've just said, um, will repeat itself in the future as well. Um, what, to what extent is that itself a theme in the poem, and what is the, um, what is the moral of that theme? Do you understand the question? Does the question make sense? Yeah. This is kind of a shot. Tall, tall. This is kind of a shot. I think maybe it has something to just do with like monarchy in general. Go on. Why? Well, okay. So in the poem, they talk about um, Saul's monarchy in the beginning, mm -hmm. and how when that fell apart, like um, pretty much like people started to have discord. And there were there were small talks of revolution, but nothing real. Mm -hmm. um, and then King David's monarchy comes along, and they compare it to Saul's. And you know, those feelings get pushed farther and farther. Mm -hmm. And Absalom is just a continuation of that. So it's, there's already a, a progression happening in, in just the biblical history of like, monarchy. So if you can see the, the British monarchy as, or the English monarchy rather, as like a continuation of that, then I guess they're kind of saying that monarchies are just cyclical violence. 
Okay, nice. And in fact, notice that, um, here's the, this diagram again. Notice that in a way you're saying the same sort of thing happens. There's a biblical story um, which will represent as starts here, ends here. And in the biblical story, you have um, the reign of David um, compared to the reign of Saul. And so that there are two monarchies in the biblical story. Now, there's a, there's a connection between the biblical story and the modern story, where the biblical story is overall said to be about David. Although Saul is in it, it's a biblical story mainly about David, who is now being compared to Charles II. So again, you get that kind of, what you could call it a golden mean analogy, because this is what the golden mean is in geometry, where um, A is to B, that is, Saul is to David in this case, as this whole thing, A plus B is to C, that is to Charles II. I don't know if this helps or not. But this story talks about a parallel between Saul and David, then the whole thing talks about a parallel between David, including um, the history of Saul, between David and Charles. So Saul is to David what David himself is to Charles, and what the story of Saul and David is to Charles. Okay, that's a little bit, what, that's a kind of historical or plot um, um, version of the structure we were looking at in the balance of the heroic couplet. That is that one line says something and the second line balances the first line, partly because unlike the first line, the second line is also balanced. Um, we looked at a couple of couplets like that. That is, um, the first line says a single thing, the second line balances the first line, and one of the ways that it balances is that it says a double thing, which means that it's got an internal balance within it as well. That structure we'll look at again and again. You don't have to think too hard about it, but. Um, just it's something to be alert to when I bring it up. Okay, so one, one thing to say then, um, absolutely correctly, is that this question of repetition is all of um, what happens historically. Repetition of political structures and of political events and of political motivations and of political tensions is already present in the biblical story. Um, and then the repetition of its presence in modern day England um, is another way of going back to the moral of the biblical story. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And the more you say the more things change, the more they stay the same, the more they stay the same. Um, Leah. Um, well, something that we talked about in your Shakespeare class was how um, Shakespeare especially would use biblical stories as allegories within his stories, not just to provide commentary on his characters, but to have his characters provide commentary on the Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, if the same thing's happening here, I mean, it it's all comes down to an argument about Protestantism versus Catholicism versus the Church of England. And so the question of reinterpreting the Bible using current political events would be very relevant at the time. Okay, yeah, so that partly what you could say, and I think, I think um, we at least are doing this, and I think this is absolutely true, is that if you have political experience, um, then suddenly stories that may just be pure plot before you know what human beings are like 
um, suddenly those stories um, become more 3D and more vivid for you. So if you're living through, I mean, again, this is why I bring up um, Obama and um, current situation, that if you want to really understand what's going on in 17th century England, um, look at the viciousness of politics in Washington now. Um, look at um, the claims that are being made, the um, assertions that are being made, the accusations that are being made, and so on, and the, and the transparent political reasons for those various things. Um, and then you can see that, no, this isn't just dry history. The same passions were occurring then. And in the same way, you could say that Dryden is saying, you know, it actually turns out that a whole lot of stuff was going on in the book of Judges and in the book of, of um, Kings um, and, the, and in the book of Samuel. And if you want to see what was really going on then, look at our politics now. So yeah, that's, that's, um, that's exactly right as well. Um, what else does it, what else, how else might um, the poem itself be making the kind of argument it does um, uh, already have a leg up for the kind of argument that it's making through the very claim that politics is always, that, that um, as Hegel will say later, history always repeats itself. Um, what if you say history repeats itself? Um, if that's a claim that you're making, what is what political um, tendency does does that um, imply? If you say that history is always repeating itself, George, you're conservative. Why? Why does that make you conservative to say that? No, you're right. But why? Why does why does it make you conservative to say that history repeats itself? Well, because. It repeats itself, you can see what's going to happen and keep it, you know, the, the way it is. Yeah. Rather than let somebody cause a revolution. Okay. So um, it repeats itself, so that gives you um, insight into how to manage it. Um, that is, if you know what revolutionaries um, are apt to do, you can take steps to, to um, thwart them. Um, what about as a general philosophical claim? that history always repeats itself. That is not something that kings should know, but that um, historians should know, that, um, that philosophers should know, even if they don't do anything about it. Um, what sort of general philosophical claim? Um, what's the politics? Not necessarily the political result, but the political judgment. Is it a conservative or a non-conservative political judgment to say that history repeats itself? Well, it kind of absolves whomever is either um, starting a revolution or trying to tamp one down is it, it absolves you from blame. It's like, oh, it's not my fault. History is repeating itself. These things will always end in a bloody manner. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it, uh, so one thing it does is it absolves you from blame. Um, Elizabeth, were you going to say something? No. Um, yeah. It also gives reason to uh, maintain the status quo because there's if you know you say that things are always going to be the same, then what's the point of trying to create a better world? It's Good. Right. Yeah, it's fatalist. You're, are you Justin? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's something fatalistic about it. Um, it's something that um, certainly um, in my adolescence, but I imagine in most people's adolescence, um, many people are credited with this quote, um, but um, I think I first heard it as attributed to H.L. Mencken, um, who said, anyone who isn't a socialist by the age of 15 has no heart. Um, anyone who is a socialist after the age of 40 has no mind. 
Um, and that um, captures um, a, a difference, a kind of general, generational difference between, let's call it adolescent idealism and middle-aged cynicism. Um, so we won't say that either is right or wrong. I, I don't want to don't want to prejudice it. But but adolescent idealism says the future will be better. Um, if we work to a better future, we will make a better future. Um, and history can be made something that doesn't repeat the past, but gets us to a better and more perfect world. Um, and the cynical middle-aged rejoinder to that is adolescents have always thought so and will always think so, and it is altogether fitting and proper that they should. But the truth is human nature is human nature, and politics is politics, and the same things happen again and again, and the same problems happen again and again. And then the conservative um, uh, conclusion drawn from this is the best you can do is manage a messy but somewhat predictable dynamic. Um, the best you can do is try to keep things relatively well-ordered um, in a situation where the revolutionaries always think, as revolutionaries um, always do, that justice is on their side and that they're going to make a better world. Um, so to say that history repeats itself, the, the most famous um, expositor of this view in the 18th century um, and the greatest is Edmund Burke. Do people know about him? We'll actually have occasion to read a little bit of his, um, of, a, of a book he wrote early on in his life called A Philosophical Inquiry into the Sublime and the Beautiful, which he wrote at age 28, um, and which is one of the great books of English literary theory and English literary criticism. Um, he then became a member of parliament and his essential view as he was, he's the greatest of all Tory members of parliament, that is of the conservative party, is a hero, um, and rightly so, um, to the history of conservatism. And his basic view is that what government and what states can do um, is prevent anarchy. Um, they can't make life perfect. What they can do is they can prevent anarchy, um, and that you should not be looking to establish a perfect state from the ground up what you should be trying to do um, is to um, make life as um, predictable and reasonable as it can be for people, even if it isn't rationally fair. Um, Burke was um, hes actually a really good guy. No matter what your politics are, he's a really good guy. Um, he was for the English Revolution. Probably his most famous or his most important book um, is his book against the French Revolution called um, Reflections on the Revolution in France, um, which came out in 1789, just when the French Revolution was starting. Um, but he is the great spokesperson for a kind of conservatism which is meant to make things as decent as they can be rather than as perfect as they can be. Um, and um, that's because for Burke, human nature is human nature. And people are what they are. And institutions are designed um, and work best when they're realistic, what he would call realistic, about human nature and human society. And to say that human nature is human nature is to say that history repeats itself. 
um, that political situations are um, just the same as they used to be, that people never change, um, that greed and desire for power um, and so on will always be a problem and will always um, be an issue. So that Dryden is already, you could say, um, in, the, in, in um, making the connection is already in some sense presupposing um, what the right answer to um, political turmoil is, which is a certain kind of wisdom which um, understands that, that utopian claims are always going to be harmful or hurtful. Um, and that's one of um, the themes of the poem. Um, it's a very anti-democratic poem. People got that? Question mark? Can, can you think of anti-democratic moments in the poem? Or, or Tal, why did you bring up the question of monarchy? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> good enough. Okay, let's put it this way. It's a very pro-monarchical poem. Um, it's very much on the side of monarchy um, as against democracy. And um, the, the defense of monarchy um, as what is best for society as a whole, that's not that easy a defense. Um, it's worth reading, even if you disagree with Dryden, as I certainly do, um, it's certainly worth reading um, Dryden for the philosophical subtlety, the politico-philosophical politico subtlety of the argument that he makes, both the argument against democracy and the argument for monarchy. Those are, those are two separate things. You probably remember um, Winston Churchill's great line that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty smart thing to say. Um, Dryden would probably say monarchy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Um, so the question is, um, given um, what he says at the very beginning of um, McFlecknell, all human things are subject to decay, um, given the fact that everything can go bad, what's the least bad option? For Churchill, it's democracy. Um, for Dryden, it's monarchy. Um, and the defense of monarchy is not a blind defense and not a fanatical defense. Um, but it, there's a positive defense of monarchy and a negative um, defense of monarchy, which takes the form of showing what, for Dryden, is wrong with democracy. Um, and he does both those things in the course of the poem. Um, all right, just to be, let, let's start off and we'll look at um, a few of the moments in it and, and some of the drama in it. Um, but just to, um, um, something you asked Leah last time was um, about the anti-Semitism in the poem. Um, and so just to look at um, Dryden's cleverness, even if it's occasionally evil or objectionable cleverness, um, the basic idea is that the English um, population at a ratio of about 10 to 1 are the Hebrews or the Israelites. That is, that England is being compared to ancient Israel, um, that um, London is being compared to Jerusalem, and so on. 
Um, and so that whenever in this poem he talks about the Jews, the Hebrews, or the Israelites, he's talking about the vast majority of the English people. Um, the Jebusites are, were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem in the Bible um, who were allowed to stay in Jerusalem, who were not um, expelled from the city when the children of Israel came. Um, so they are, um, in the poem, um, they stand for a population of older inhabitants of the city, um, since the poem is reading all of this in terms of um, religious politics, the Jebusites are the Catholics. Um, and there's um, part of what the poem is about is tolerance, which is something Burke was very strongly for also. Tolerance for the Catholics, tolerance for the Jebusites. And then the radicals are those who are intolerant of them and who are led in the poem by the Sanhedrin, that is the um, Council of Judges, um, and or by the priests. Um, and so the poem, obviously it's not nearly as funny as McFleckno, although it has its moments. Um, but the poem, for example, begins with um, a wonderful little piece of irony. In pious times, ere priestcraft did begin, um, before polygamy was made a sin, when man on many multiplied his kind, ere one to one was cursedly confined, when nature prompted and no law denied, promiscuous use of concubine and bride, then Israel monarch, Israel's monarch after heaven's heart, his vigorous warmth did variously impart to wives and slaves. So um, what he's saying is before the laws changed and monogamy on both sides became the law, um, marriage became something between one man and one woman, um, as they used to say. Um, before that happened, um, polygamy was permitted, as, the, as we know from the Bible. Um, and Dryden very nicely um, says, I'm just telling you when this was. It was ere priestcraft did begin. That is before the time of the priests. And by priests here, he means, um, the, he means Anglican priests. Um, he means those who are asserting authority by virtue of their position in the Anglican church. But he's saying there once was a time um, and a little bit, he's thinking of Henry VIII here also, but only a little bit. There once was a time which was pious and where polygamy was fine. So it was okay that David was polygamous in just the same way that it's okay that Charles is having a lot of extramarital sex. He's not against that particularly. Um, and then it's just by accident that the coming of priestcraft means the times are no more pious. That's officially what he's saying. But of course the joke of the first line is people were pious until priests came around. And once they came around, um, that was the end of piety. So in pious times, way back then, before priests were around, in pious times, your priestcraft did begin, before polygamy was made a sin, by whom? By the priests. When man on many multiplied his kind, so that um, men would have children by many different women, um, ere one-to-one -one was cursedly confined, that is, before... Um, it was one man and one woman for life. Um, when nature prompted and no law denied, so people followed the promptings of their sexual desire and no law said this was wrong. 
Um, no law denied and nature prompted the promiscuous use of concubine and bride. Then Israel's monarch, after heaven's own heart, or after hen's own heart, um, doing what God wanted, his vigorous warmth did variously impart to wives and slaves, and wide as his command scattered his maker's image through the land. Um, so that really is funny. God has made man's image. David is made in his maker's image. Um, like a good guy, he scattered his image through the land by having lots of children, by lots of different women. And um, the result is that Absalom, that is to say, Buckingham is, um, excuse me, um, uh, Buckingham is, is um, one of his children, and um, but because priestcraft has now occurred, that child is a bastard child, and the question is, I'm sorry, Monmouth, um, and thank you, that child is his bastard child. Yeah, I corrected myself by repeating my error, um, and that child is... Um, his bastard child, Absalom, of all this numerous progeny, was none so beautiful, so brave as Absalom. Um, just to note there, he's um, Dryden, who is a great admirer of Milton, although not of his politics, but a great admirer of Paradise Lost, um, is a little bit alluding to and retelling um, the story of Satan in Paradise Lost, the most beautiful of the archangels, who nevertheless rebels against God. Um, and so Absalom is just great, um, and, um, and, um, good in every way. Let's go to, um, um, line 43, but life can never be sincerely blessed. That is human life. All human things are subject to decay. Life can never be blessed without, um, reservation, um, absolutely, but life can never be sincerely blessed. Heaven or hen punishes the bad and proves the best, that is, tests the best in the world. So no matter who you are, whether you're a bad guy and get punished or whether you're a good guy like Job and get tested, bad things will happen to you in life. So bad things will happen to Absalom, whether he's bad or whether he's good. The Jews, here the English, a headstrong, moody, murmuring race has ever tried the extent and stretch of grace. So um, the Jews are always seeing how much they can get away with. And here there is the first hint of anti-Semitism in the poem. The poem isn't about um, Jews, it uses Jews. Um, and use its attitudes towards Jews to make its point. It's not like the Merchant of Venice, which you, the argument will be, it certainly is either anti or philo-Semitic, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. There's no question that it's one or the other. It's either an attack on or a defense of Judaism, or at least you could say it's either an attack on Jews or an attack on, on anti-Semites. Um, for Dryden, it isn't. Dryden is neither attacking Jews nor attacking those who would attack Jews. He's using kind of garden variety anti-Semitism, which he in a garden variety way agrees with and accepts as a way of insulting the English people when they're behaving badly. So there's a lot of give in the parallel between the English and the Jews. Sometimes it's pure plot 
here's a biblical story, and here's a story about England, and what the Jews are in the Bible, the English are in the 17th century, in the late 17th century. Um, sometimes it's pure plot, and sometimes it's actual castigation. That is, the English are behaving just like the Jews in the Bible. You, you guys really want to be called Jews in your behavior because you're behaving like Jews. Um, and there he's using um, anti-Semitic attitudes um, to make his um, political and polemical and vindictive point. So it's pointless and wrong to try in any way to defend this poem from charges of anti-Semitism. It's just anti-Semitism is also not the point of the poem. Um, it's something the poem puts to use. Um, it, this is just background anti-Semitism um, that you're getting in Dryden. Um, so is that a skeptical smile, Elizabeth? Okay, um, so here what we're finding is, so if you are against, um, if you're for Absalom, if you're against David, um, yeah, that's the kind of thing Jews do. Um, you guys should know better, but no, you're Jews. The Jews, a headstrong, moody, murmuring race, which is, you know, what God says about them to Moses, for they are, and st no, he doesn't say and, for they are a stiff-necked people. Um, and Moses keeps defending them. So Dryden just picks that up. The Jews, a headstrong, moody, murmuring race has ever tried the extent and stretch of grace. God's pampered people, whom debauched with ease, no king could govern, nor no god could please. So notice the wonderful balance there. They're God's pampered people, whom no god could please. Gods they had tried of every shape and size that godsmiths could produce or priests devise. So idolaters, people who said they spoke for God, godsmiths is a great term. Um, they tried them all, um, also anything that the priests could come up with in their theories about God. And then having been unsatisfied with all the gods that they tried, Dryden says, these Adam wits, too fortunately free, began to dream they wanted liberty. That is... Um, Having tried all these gods, I thought, well, maybe what we really lack, want here means lack, um, as in living a life of penury and want. Um, they started thinking, you know, what's really wrong with us is that we don't have liberty. Um, and Dryden's comment on that is immediate. And when no rule, no precedent was found of men by laws less circumscribed and bound, that is, he says, so they looked around to see who had more liberty than they did in history, and they couldn't find any people freer than they were, what did they do? They led their wild desires to woods and caves and thought that all but savages were slaves. So not being able to find any civilized people um, more free than they, they decided that they um, had to look at um, savages who lived in a state of nature and decided that unless you had absolute anarchical freedom as you would find in a state of nature, you were still a slave. Um, so what Dryden is seeing here is an impulse or impetus towards anarchy. Um, and the behind and to the side of this poem is Dryden's contemporary Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, the um, philosopher who um, is um, very, most famous for his book, Leviathan. Um, do people know about Leviathan? 
Um, we get a rare nod from Tina. Can you say something about it? Yeah, so Leviathan advocates absolute monarchy, but not out of um, a sense that monarchs rule by divine right, um, but rather that, as Hobbes puts it, the state of man in nature is a war of everyone against everyone. That is what, and um, another famous um, line of his is that the state of man in nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, a famous set of adjectives from Hobbes. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's what life is like in a state of nature. Um, Thomas Pynchon in um, The Crying of Lot 49 names a law firm after that. It's solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short esquires. Um, so um, that's what life is really like unless a commonwealth um, is contracted, unless people agree to band together um, in order to form a society. That agreement takes the form of accepting limitations on their rights and their behavior. And the name and image and power and icon and um, leader of this banding together of free individuals, of absolutely free but absolutely um, violent individuals, is they all band together to confer sovereignty upon a king. So what the monarch is in Hobbes, the famous front piece, frontispiece to Leviathan, um, shows a picture of the king. And if you look closely at the picture, he's made up of all the people. So the king, according to Hobbes, is the person in whom the power of the people is um, instantiated. So the king has absolute power because he represents the general will of the people, the people as a whole. Um, the reason we allow ourselves to be ruled by monarchs, says Hobbes, is not that God gave them power, but that we gave them that power, and we gave it to them completely. We didn't give it to them for as long as they were doing what we wanted, but we realized that we had to give someone that power absolutely, and with that absolute power, and only with that absolute power, could they govern a society and prevent um, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short violent lives for everyone at all times. So Hobbes has a kind of paradoxical view, which is that for him, the monarch is um, made into a monarch because the people agree to this. The people um, band together to create a monarch. So the monarch is the, um, is the tool or instrument or creation of the people, but is real and has absolute power. 
Um, so that's, that's um, the Hobbesian view. And that's one that Dryden is going to think about um, in this poem. Hobbes had, had published Leviathan about 15 years earlier. He and Dryden, um, he, uh, Hobbes was born in, 15, in 1590, and I guess he had just died um, when this came out. Um, but he and Dryden were more or less contemporaries. He, Dryden, and Milton were, were within a generation of each other. Um, so here um, they decide, no, they want to return to a state of um, absolute savage life. And that's the thing that Hobbes saw humanity as having um, figured out a way beyond. Um, and so they thought that all but savages were slaves. Um, and um, then they thought about how the person who was supposed to inherit the crown from Saul didn't, um, but David inherited again, excuse me, David inherited it instead, and that they could do such a thing again. So um, line 61, um, those very Jews who at their very best their humor more than loyalty expressed, now wondered why so long they had obeyed an idle monarch which their hands had made. So like the golden calf, they'd made the king. They themselves had created the king into the king. Why should they obey him um, when they had made him with their hands? Thought they might ruin him they could create or melt him to that golden calf, a state where state means um, a republic form of government, a republican, a, a, a more or less democratic form of government. If they don't like kings, why not melt the king away into that other idol, which is a state? Um, nevertheless, says Dryden, um, even though there were lots of impulses to do this, these were random bolts. No form design nor interest made the factious crowd to join, to yeah, spelt join but pronounced join. So there were lo there's lots of discontent. They all thought this was really bad, um, but they didn't have anyone joining them together um, into a revolutionary party. Um, yeah, so there's some teabaggers around, so what? They're never going to get together and do anything as people thought a year ago. Um, so that's essentially the situation. Then there's a lot of discontent, but they don't come together to form a single party. That is going to matter at the end of the poem also, because the idea is that those out of power um, seem to be willing to agree with each other, but in fact they don't agree with each other. And even at this point they're not agreeing with each other until Achitophel comes along. Um, let's keep going. Um, the sober part of Israel, so not the very Jews, but the sober part of Israel. So now you can start getting that Jews is a term of opprobrium in the poem, whereas um, Israel will be used in more neutral or even praise, praising contexts, but about the same ethnic people. The sober part of Israel, free from stain, well knew the value of a peaceful reign. So that's part of the conservative politics of this. And looking backward with a wise affright, saw seams of wounds dishonest to the sight in contemplation of whose ugly scars they cursed 
the memory of civil wars. So there'd been a civil war from 1642 that more or less lasted till 1660, and now it's barely 20 years later, and the last thing they want is another one, the sober part of Israel. They knew these were bad things. The moderate sort of men, thus qualified, inclined the balance to the better side. So here again, you get a balanced couplet, and the moderate sort of men, the moderate types, um, prevented revolution from breaking out. They knew that, that um, order and peace mattered. And David's mildness managed it so well, the bad found no occasion to rebel. So, every, so David was a good and mild king. Charles II was a good and mild king. Plus the sober part of the country knew that um, war would be dreadful. So um, it was okay, even though there was a lot of violent political um, discontent, things were okay. But when to sin our biased nature leans, if the balance starts going the other way, when to sin our biased nature leans, the careful devil is still at hand with means. So if we just start going the other way, the balance is itself unbalanced. The balance between evil and good is not balanced. The, bal the balance itself becomes unbalanced if you compare what happens when the scale starts tilting towards good. It doesn't tilt very far because good is always moderate. But if it starts tilting towards evil, it tilts a lot because the devil is there and evil is immoderate. So if good is moderate and evil is immoderate, they may be moderately well-balanced, and that will seem good. But if the balance starts going out of whack, it's really going to shoot down towards evil. Um, good, goodness and moderation are tricky to keep going. It's tricky to keep things well-balanced. And when they're not well-balanced, they tilt towards evil because the careful devil is still at hands at hand with means, and providently pimps for ill desires. The good old cause revived, a plot requires. So the good old cause are the Puritan revolutionaries. Um, they were the ones who overthrew Charles I, and now they want a plot to overthrow Charles II. And the joke here is they require a plot. Plots, true or false, are necessary things to raise up commonwealths, commonwealth here being a bad word, and ruin kings. So the idea is a true plot is when you yourself plot to ruin a king. What's a false plot? How is a false plot a necessary thing? In the poem, the false plot is, is actually the thing Achitophel is using most. Anyone remember what the plot is? If I say Titus Oaks, you say? You say, thank goodness the exam isn't today. The claim was, there was a guy named Titus Oaks who was um, a very iffy person who appears in the poem. Well, let's go. Let's. Uh, look at what Dryden has to say about him in the poem. Um, this, he um, comes in at line 630. 
Um, and um, here what Dryden is doing is describing all the people who are on the side of Aslam and Achitophel against the king. Um, and um, Titus Oakes was a very useful witness for those who said that the Catholics in France and in England were plotting to assassinate Charles II. Titus Oakes, who had been a priest, um, said, um, confessed that this was true and then started making stuff up. A little bit the way um, supposedly it appears that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed has made up almost all the things that the Bush administration reported him as saying. That is that, yeah, there was a plot to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge and there was a plot to do tons and tons of things. And it seems like most of it is BS, um, but that he, he was making all this stuff up. Titus Oakes was in the same position um, in uh, the 1680s. So um, he kind of disqualified himself because every time there was some um, contradiction or some gap in his testimony, he would suddenly remember more things that he hadn't mentioned before. Um, and he was just amazingly good at spinning out further and further yarns. So to speak the rest, who better or forgot would tire well-breathed witness of the plot. That's line 630. So for me, Dryden, to talk about the rest of the evil people on Absalom and Achitophel's side, there were so many of them, and I, have to, I would have to say so much, that even someone who was um, reporting on the plot to assassinate the king would get tired um, speaking so much, and they can speak forever about what's going on. Yet Korah, that is Titus Oaks, thou shalt from oblivion pass, erect thyself, thou monumental brass, high as the serpent of thy metal made, while nations stand secure beneath thy shade. So um, Korah is, that is Titus Oaks, is going to be um, described, um, and he is uh, made of brass, um, just like the, um, the uh, serpent made of brass um, that Moses used um, when he was leading the children of Israel around to do some of his healing. Um, the joke here is that Oakes was gay, and so Dryden is, is sort of uh, making a homophobic insult there. Um, erect thyself, thou monumental brass. Um, there's a joke in the word erect there. Yet Korah, thou shalt from oblivion pass, erect thyself, thou monumental brass, high as the serpent of thy metal made. While nations stand secure beneath thy shade, um, and then he insults him for a while. What though his birth were base, yet comets rise from earthly vapors. Ere they shine in skies. Prodigi prodigious actions may as well be done by weaver's issue as by prince's son. He was, Oaks was the son of a weaver. This arch attester for the public good by that one deed ennobles all his blood. So by witnessing in the way that Absalom and Achitophel want him to witness against the Catholics, um, then he is ennobling his blood, making himself important, and presumably making his whole family important as a reward. So he's getting bribed to witness against um, Catholicism and to say that James II, or the, the, um, 
likely heir apparent James II is part of the plot against David, that is, against his brother Charles. Um, whoever asked, he says quite reasonably, ironically, whoever asked the witnesses high race, whose oath with martyrdom did Stephen grace? So Stephen was martyred by false witnesses, and what Dryden is saying ironically is they were good guys because they graced Stephen with martyrdom. They made him into a martyr, therefore they're good guys. No one worried about um, what their background was. Why worry about Korah's background? Ours, Korah was a Levite, that is to say a priest, um, and as times went then, his tribe were God Almighty's gentlemen. Sunk were his eyes, his voice was harsh and loud. Sure signs he neither choleric was nor proud. His long chin proved his wit, his saint-like grace, a church vermilion and a Moses face. So essentially he's a hypocrite um, in every way. And then his memory, miraculously good, could plot, great, excuse me, his memory, miraculously great, could plots exceeding man's belief repeat which therefore cannot be accounted lies, for human wit could never such devise. Um, so um, he, his memory was so great that whenever he needed to remember something um, as part of the plot against Charles, he could remember it. So he's the great false witness. And the fact that he claims that this non-existent or um, at least extremely un important plot was occurring is very, very useful. Um, again, here you should think of McCarthy um, saying something like, there's a communist plot to take over the government. I have in my hand a list of 53 members of the State Department who are, who, uh, 53 people in the State Department who are members of the Communist Party. It's always helpful to demagogues, this is the repetition of history, it is always helpful to demagogues to claim that they have discovered a plot that the other side is undertaking against the, um, uh, the, the wisdom and duty and morality and laws of the country. Um, Obama has a plot to make this country Muslim. It's the same thing. Obama has a plot to make the country Muslim and socialist, and um, James and his followers have a plot to make England Catholic and socialist, or at least um, actually a Catholic dictatorship is what the, what the plot is supposed to be. So the joke back on line 83, plots, true or false, are necessary things to raise up commonwealths and ruin kings. True plots, because you have to figure out what your plan is in order to cause the revolution, and false plots, because you have to accuse the other side of engaging in evil chicanery and having a plan to do terrible things. Um, so that's what the devil provides, is the false plot, which the Whigs are going to use to try and exclude James II from um, taking power. So now then we hear about the Jebusites, that is the Catholics in old Jerusalem, um, and let's just go on to, um, I guess, uh, go to around line 130. These are all the, there's a long catalog of malcontents 
and at line 130, we get towards the end of that catalog, some thought they, God's anointed, meant to slay by guns, invented since full many a day. So some thought that, um, um, that the Jebusites were going to slay God's anointed, David or Charles II. The phrase God's anointed also comes from judges, by the way. It's why David will never raise his hand against Saul. Um, some, some thought that God's anointed meant to slay by guns invented since full many a day. Um, that obviously tells you that this is not a biblical story because there were, weren't guns in the Bible. Um, and in fact, Dryden says that. And that's kind of ridiculous because guns weren't invented till much later, he says. So they were just wrong about that. You couldn't be more wrong um, if you thought that anyone was going to try to kill David with guns because they didn't have them. Um, our author swears it not. That is, that's not what the Bible says. But who can know how far the devil and Jebusites may go? This plot, which failed for want of common sense, had yet a deep and dangerous consequence. So the plot isn't real, or if it is real, it's just ridiculous, but it still has a deep and dangerous consequence. For, as when raging fevers boil the blood, the standing lake soon floats into a flood, and every hostile humor which before slept quiet in its channels bubbles o'er. So several factions from this first ferment work up to foam and threat the government. Some by their friends, more by themselves thought wise, opposed the power to which they could not rise. So basically the body politic is becoming very sick, um, and everyone is working up to foam that is becoming rabid, foaming at the mouth, threatening the government. Um, some are thought wise by their friends. Yeah, yeah, you should, you should really um, try to become king. More were thought wise by themselves. Yeah, I'm better than any of these people. Um, and they opposed the power to which they could not rise. They couldn't do it, so they went against it. Some had in courts been great and thrown from thence like fiends, were hardened in impenitence. Some, by their monarch's fatal mercy grown from pardoned rebels, kinsmen to the throne, were raised in power and public office high. Strong bands, if bands ungrateful men could tie. So some had been kicked out of court and were resentful. Some had power in court and wanted more. And now here's Achitophel. Of these, the false Achitophel was first a name to all succeeding ages cursed, for close designs and crooked counsels fit, sagacious, bold, and turbulent of wit, restless, unfixed in principles in place, in power unpleased, impatient of disgrace. So he wasn't happy if he had power, he hated to be disgraced. A fiery soul, which working out its way, fretted the pygmy body to decay and or informed the tenement of clay. Um, so here's Achitophel, and he is now going to try to get power, and he needs an instrument in order to do it. So go now um, to around line 200. Dryden says he would have been a good guy if he had kept to um, his own talents and his own desserts, um, but he didn't. And as Dryden says, a famous line, line 198, wild ambition 
loves to slide, not stand. Um, that is, wild ambition can't just stay where it is. It wants to slide, and usually that'll mean a slide down to destruction, but it's trying to slide, to move faster and to slide upwards. Wild ambition loves to slide, not stand, and fortune's ice on which it can slide prefers to virtue's land. So um, virtue's land is a place where you would stand fast. Fortune's ice is where you would take your chances, moving as fast as possible, but that ice may break or you may fall or you may slide in the wrong direction. Achitophel, grown weary to possess a lawful fame and lazy happiness, disdained the golden fruit to gather free and lent the crowd his arm to shake the tree. So he had as much fruit from the tree as he wanted. Golden fruit he could have for free. He was doing perfectly well. But that wasn't enough for him. He was tired of lawful fame and lazy happiness, so he decided to take the whole tree. And he helped the crowd shake the tree, get all the fruit off the tree instead of gathering it himself for free. He lent the crowd his arm to shake the tree. Now, manifest of crimes contrived long since, he stood at bold defiance with his prince, held up the buckler of the people's cause against the crown, and skulked behind the laws. The wished occasion of the plot he takes. So there's this apparent conspiracy, and he he takes it in order to turn it into political capital. Some circumstances finds, that is, there's some evidence that there's some stuff going on, but more he makes by buzzing emissaries fills the ears of listening crowds. There's the crowd again. He lent the crowd his arm to shake the tree. Now he fills the ears of listening crowds with jealousies and fears of arbitrary counsels brought to light and proves the king himself a Jebusite. So now he's claiming that um, the king himself is a traitor to England. The king is himself a Catholic. Um, so it's not only a plot against. So the first idea was the Catholics were trying to kill the king, but it's even worse than that. The Catholics are so powerful that the king himself is one. Um, so, the, so the plot has become self-contradictory at this point, but it doesn't matter. Weak arguments. It is self-contradictory, which yet he knew full well were strong with people, easy to rebel. That is, they were weak arguments, but if you wanted to rebel, you'd believe them. For governed by the moon, the giddy Jews, so here we have the Jews again. For governed by the moon, the giddy Jews tread the same track when she the prime renews. Whatever the moon does, the Jews follow. And once in 20 years, their scribes record, by natural instinct, they change their lord. So they're constantly um, engaged in revolution. But Achitophel needs a figurehead. Um, a straw dog to hunt behind. So Achitophel still wants a chief, and none was found so fit as warlike Absalom. Not that he wished his greatness to create. So Absalom is perfect. Why? Not that Achitophel wanted to make him great. Not that he wished his greatness to create, for politicians neither love nor hate. He had no well, what do you think that parenthesis means? Politicians neither love nor hate. Not that he wished his greatness to create, for politicians neither love nor hate. 
Yeah, George. They just make use of anything to push themselves forward. Yeah, that when, whenever you hear a politician talking about how good someone is or how evil someone else is, how they just can't stand what this politician is doing or what this person is doing, how this other person is a paragon of virtue, all of that is strategic. All of it is just politicians saying what they can in order to promote their own self-interest. You can't be, it's Machiavellian, you can't be a good politician if you care about people. Um, because then you won't always be simply looking for what is the best move in any situation. So what Dryden is saying is Achitophel is a pure politician. He didn't, he didn't want to make Absalom great because he liked Absalom. He didn't um, hate Absalom either. Absalom for him was entirely an instrument to the game that he was playing. So not that he wished his greatness to create, for politicians neither love nor hate, but for he knew his title not allowed would keep him still depending on the crowd. So he knew that because Absalom couldn't officially be king, that Absalom would have to, if he became king, it would always be because the crowd supported him. So Achitophel's idea was the person who should replace Charles is a person who would not have the legal or lawful or traditional or religious authority that a legitimate king would have. He could therefore only rule to the extent that the crowd um, accepted him as king, not whether the crowd accepted him as king or not. Again, David in um, Judges and in Samuel absolutely refuses to strike Saul. And what he says over and over again is, I may never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. It doesn't matter if everyone wants me to be king and everyone hates him and everyone um, would support me if I killed Saul, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. What Achitophel is trying to do is change that so that people no longer see kings as people who have to be obeyed, as monarchs who have to be obeyed, whether you agree with them or not, whether the majority of the country agrees with them or not, they have to be obeyed no matter what. That's what Achitophel is going against. So his idea is if Absalom is king, then he will be the kind of king who must always have the people on his side. If he fails to have the people on his side, he will be overthrown just as Charles is being overthrown. So overthrowing Charles has two good results from Achitophel's point of view. One is it allows Achitophel to get his friend Absalom on the throne and therefore to have nearly absolute power. But the other is it shows Absalom that even being on the throne does not guarantee him the kind of power that Charles thinks he has. That is that Absalom will be king, but he will know that he's only king thanks to the favor of the crowd. And Achitophel is the one who will be able to manipulate the crowd through what he keeps calling his arts, 
Achitophel is very, very good at demagoguery. So if he makes Absalom king, he, Achitophel, will control the crowd which allows Absalom to be king. Before he knew his title, not allowed would keep him still depending on the crowd. That kingly power, thus ebbing out, might be drawn to the dregs of a, oh no, the worst thing in the world, of a democracy. Him, he attempts with studied arts to please and sheds his venom in such words as these. So now he's going to make Absalom his tool um, in order to turn England into a democracy that he will be able to lead because he's so good at demagoguery. The dem and demagoguery and the dem and democracy is the same word, um, the people. He, Achitophel, can control the crowd. Um, so if England is a democracy, he will be the most powerful person in England. But he needs Absalom to be the figurehead, to be the official king. So then he praises Absalom for a while um, and then um, and praises David for a while. Um, and then he says, now it's time. You're a great guy. Um, it's, you have your opportunity here. This is the time that you should do it. Go to um, line um, 250. Believe me, royal youth, thy fruit must be or gathered ripe or rot upon the tree. So it's time to gather your fruit or it will rot upon the tree. Heaven has to all or Hen has to all allotted soon or late some lucky revolution of their fate. That is, there's opportunity always comes knocking sooner or later. Whose motions, if we watch and guide with skill, for human good depends on human will. Our fortune rolls as from a smooth descent and from the first impression takes the bent. But if unseized, she glides away like wind and leads repenting folly far behind. Uh, excuse me, but if unseized, she glides away like wind and leads repenting folly far behind. So if you don't take your opportunity when it comes, she'll glide away like wind. And then you'll repent. Um, you'll say, why didn't I take my shot when I could? Now, now she meets you with a glorious prize. Now's the time. Now, now she meets you with a glorious prize and spreads her locks before her as she flies. And thus, old David, from whose loins you spring, not dared. Excuse me. Had thus old David, from whose loins you spring, not dared, when fortune called him to be king. At Gath in exile, he might still remain, and heaven's anointing oil had been in vain. So what he's saying is, now is your chance, and look at David. When it was time for him, he took his chance. He did the right thing. What you should do is what your father did, which is when it becomes time for you to have a chance to become king, seize the opportunity. You wouldn't be going against your father by doing that. You'd be doing just what he did. You'd really show that you were his father's son. So that's a pretty clever mode of persuasion. Um, let his successful youth, your hopes, engage. Do what he did. And then, but here's another reason to do it. Not only should you be the way he was when he was young, 
But what you shouldn't do is allow him to be the way he is now that he's old. But shun the example of declining age. Behold him setting in his western skies, the shadows lengthening as the vapors rise. He is not now, as when on Jordan's sand the joyful people throng to see him land, covering the beach and blackening all the strand. Notice the triplet there. But like the prince of angels from his height comes tumbling downward with diminished light, betrayed by one poor plot, there it is again, to public scorn, our only blessing since his cursed return. So now David is being scorned by the public. That's another reason that you should take over. It's terrible what's happening to him. Um, look at what's going on. And in fact, he might very well join with the Jebusites and with Pharaoh, that is with um, France, against England. Um, so it's really important that you take over now. And then Dryden asks at line 303, what cannot praise effect in mighty minds when flattery soothes and when ambition blinds? So Absalom is ambitious, Achitophel is flattering him and praising him, and how could he not um, fall into temptation? So he replies at line 315, and what pretense have I to take up arms for public liberty? He's thinking to himself. My father governs with unquestioned right, the faith's defender in mankind's delight, good, gracious, just, observant of the laws. And heaven by wonders has espoused his cause. That is, God makes it clear through um, signs in the heavens that he um, agrees with David. Whom has he wronged in all his peaceful reign? Who sues for justice to his throne in vain? So we get Absalom first presenting the anti-rebellious um, view. And he says, no, he's on, David is great. And this allows Dryden to say even Absalom concedes how great David is. Um, even Monmouth concedes how great Charles II is. Um, he's great in every way. Um, he, he, he's inclined to mercy and averse from blood. If mildness ill with stubborn Israel's suit, at line 327, his crime is God's beloved attribute. So if Israel is stubborn, um, and mildness doesn't do well with Israel, still, even if it's wrong, it's the best attribute of God is his mildness. What could he gain his people to betray or change his right for arbitrary sway? Why would he ever do that? Let haughty Pharaoh curse with such a rain his fruitful Nile and yoke a servile train. That is, let them do that in France, have an absolute and despotic king. David's not like that. If David's rule Jerusalem displeased, the dog star heats their brains to this disease. Um, so they just think this because they're going crazy in the summer heat. Why then should I, encouraging the bad, turn rebel and run popularly mad? God, democracy is awful. Were he a tyrant who by lawless might oppress the Jews and raise the Jebusite, well might I mourn, but nature's holy bands would curb my spirits and restrain my hand. So even if he were a tyrant, it would be the fact that he's my father would prevent me from going against him. The people might assert their liberty, but what was right in them 
were crime in me. So even if, the, even if he were a tyrant and the people had the right, which now he's convincing himself they do, Dryden doesn't agree, but he is convincing himself they do, even if they had the right to rebel, I wouldn't have the right because he's my father, not only my king, but also my father. What was right in them were crime in me. His favor leaves me nothing to require, prevents my wishes, and outruns desire. That is, he forestalls my wishes. Um, he grants me my wishes before I even have them and outruns desire. What more can I expect while David lives? All but his kingly diadem he gives, and that, so I have everything I want from him except the kingship, and that, but there he paused, then sighing said, is justly destined for a worthier head. For when my father from his toils shall rest and late augment the number of the blessed, his lawful issue shall the throne ascend or the collateral line where that shall end. So if he has no children, then James, his brother, the collateral line will become king, his brother, though oppressed with vulgar spite. Um, so he's thinking about all this, but then he starts getting bitter and he finally um, feels awful about the fact that he thinks he should be king. Look how good he's being about um, giving up his claims to kingship. And then he says, self-pleasingly, desire for greatness is a god-like sin. And when Achitophel sees him starting to waver, he pursues. This is at line 376. The eternal God, says Achitophel, supremely good and wise, imparts not these prodigious gifts in vain. What wonders are reserved to bless your reign? Against your will, your arguments have shown such virtues only given to guide a throne. So the very fact that you think it's wrong to become king and that you don't want to do it shows that you really should be king. So that's a very pleasing idea to Absalom, that the very fact that he's saying, I really can't do it, I mustn't, it's wrong, becomes for Achitophel the best evidence that he should do it. And then he goes on to make the Hobbesian claim. We'll stop with this, and um, I'll just say something in a second, but um, uh, go to um, um, line 408 till time shall ever wanting David draw to pass your doubtful title into law. Um, that is, we can pressure him through um, not giving him money to, make, to legitimize you and make you the, the um, next king. If not, if, they, if he refuses to legitimize you, says Achitophel, the people have a right supreme to make their kings, for kings are made for them. All empire is no more than power in trust, which when resumed can be no longer just. Succession for the general good designed in its own wrong a nation cannot bind. So what he's saying is kings are only kings by consent of the governed. If um, the people decide that they want power again, kings have to give it up. Kings are made for the people, not people for the kings, but kings are made for the people. Empire is power entrusted to the kings, 
But if the people want their power back, then kings can no longer justly keep power. Succession is for the general good. That is, if a king leaves the kingship to the next person in line, that's only if it's good for the people, but cannot bind, cannot force a people to take on as a king someone who wouldn't be good for them. So that's, absol- that's Achitophel's strong and um, pretty powerful pro-democratic argument that kings are kings because the people consent to their power. And if the people stop consenting, they have a right to alter or abolish the monarchy, as um, we did in the Declaration of Independence. Dryden is going to argue against that, but I think it has to be admitted that he gives a fairly decent account of the pro-democracy argument. Um, you know, not as powerful as it could be, but not so bad. He has to do it in order to give the argument against it the weight he wants to give it, and that's going to come later. Okay, what you should do over break, so we have a week before we meet again, what you should do over break now is read Religio Laici, um, where Dryden gives his own religious views, at least at the time that he's writing it, in the early 1680s. Um, Read Religio Laici, um, and you know, if you haven't quite finished rereading Absalom and Achitophel for the second time, that is, if you haven't done your second reading yet, uh, you should do that too. It's not that much reading, and you have a week to do it. Um, so have a good break, and I will see you in a week.